Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Mark Mazauer on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Hitler's Empire, How the Nazis Ruled Europe. I'm a student of the topic myself, and I was very keen to read the book, and I think it was absolutely terrific. Uh, Mark is an expert on um, German history, and he also is an expert on Greek history, and he's quite well known for his interpretation of 20th century European history, Dark Continent, another book that I highly recommend. So it was my great pleasure to talk to Mark today. I hope you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Mark. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Good, thank you. Good, very good. I should tell our listeners that we have Mark Mazauer on the show today, and we'll be talking about his book, Hitler's Empire, How the Nazis Ruled Europe. Uh, I've read the book, and it, it's it's really Quite, quite an extraordinary uh, piece of work. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, and I'm and I'm I'm really pleased and honored to have Mark on the show today. And I imagine that everybody is going to enjoy the interview. Um, Mark, if you could do us the favor of beginning by telling us just a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and where you went to school, and that kind of thing. Sure, uh, I'm a Brit. I uh, was born and grew up in London. Uh, Went, went to schools there and uh, went to university at Oxford and uh, read classics and philosophy there mm-hmm. and um, then wandered about a bit. I spent uh, two years in Bologna, Italy, mm-hmm. um, went back and did my PhD uh, at, at Oxford and spent a year in Greece mm-hmm. um, as part of my research time for that. Mm-hmm. And who did you work with at Oxford? Who was your advisor there? Um, I I was very lucky. Uh, I I had an anthropologist called John Campbell, Mm -hmm. uh, who um, was a student of Evans Pritchard. Mm -hmm. Um, Greece is a small country, and not many people work on Greece, either uh, in the UK or the US. Uh, And he was one of the very few people who was willing to take doctoral students. And... uh, he was from that generation of anthropologists um, who regarded themselves as historians as well. Mm-hmm. He'd gone to Greece uh, for the first time, I think, um, with the British troops at the end of the Second World oh, War. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, had then uh, written an important book on uh, clientelism and patronage in Greece in the 50s, mm-hmm. uh, which was formative, really, in um, shaping a, a whole... Um, perspective on on the Mediterranean at that time, mm-hmm. and um, I worked with him. And how did you become interested in Greece, particularly? Um, two things really. I I read classics as an undergraduate. That was the first time mm-hmm. that I went to Greece was in connection with that. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to Italy uh, uh, to do my MA in Bologna, uh, I thought, well, the Mediterranean is a is a nice place. I need, <laughs> an, uh, I need an excuse to keep coming back here and. Yeah. The only question in my mind was, should it be Italy or should it be Greece? And um, I, I enjoyed Bologna very much, but uh, I enjoyed Greece more. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was 81, Papandreou and the PASOK government had just come into power. There was a lot of euphoria and perhaps naivete about them still. And there was a kind of optimism and uh, full-bloodedness about people's attitude to politics mm-hmm. that I liked, whereas mm-hmm. Italy at that time... and even more today, I guess, um, there was a deeply cynical and world-weary um, feeling towards the politicians in Rome for mm-hmm. 
completely understandable reasons, by the way. Uh, and I, 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 I understood that, but found it depressing. Mm -hmm. and, and prefer and preferred the energy of Greece. Yeah. And uh that was that was how I ended up there. Uh, that's a good reason to choose a topic. I don't know how it happened, but I ended up with Russia. And I don't know why. Well, I'll tell you how it happened. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how it I mean, you were probably the product of a highly professionalized graduate education system, whereas I'm the, the product of a completely unprofessionalized graduate education system where nobody ever discussed the likely job market with me or pointed me in one direction or another or, or noted that there were probably not ever going to be any jobs in modern Greek history at yeah. any serious university. Yeah. And, and that was the precondition for being able to do it. Well, it's funny. It's an, it's an interesting point because um, although I am the product of a, a highly professional uh, PhD program, um, and you're right to say that we were thinking about jobs, and the Cold War was on at the time. Um, in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were all rather in mourning because, as a friend of mine used to say, the, the Russia just became India, and most departments only have one Indian historian. So. Uh, well, of course, now it's not so bad to be India, no. and, and anyway, it's back to being Russia again. No, it's true, and that's kind of nice in a way. I guess nice for me, but not nice for them. Not, uh, yes, not nice for the Georgians. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, so your first book, if I recall, was on the Nazi occupation of Greece. Is that right? Well, there was, in fact, an incredibly boring thesis book even before oh, that, really? Okay, I don't which know about was that on um, uh, which was on on interwar Greece, on the economic crisis and the and the drift towards the authoritarianism. But the the first book that was halfway readable came after that and uh -huh. was about the German occupation of Greece. That's right. Uh -huh, yeah, and so that 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 provides provided you kind of a platform for writing this book. But then in between, you wrote Dark Continent, for which you are quite well known. I think is that right? Uh, yeah, I um, found that uh, although my expertise was on Greece, uh, um, almost nobody in uh, in the university world was particularly interested in it, and um, <laughs> that meant that I did very little teaching on modern Greece, and I tended to teach broad course survey courses on yeah. Europe, uh -huh. and um, that got me thinking about European history, and in fact, my first teaching job was in an international relations department where right? I taught a survey course on Europe that ran through the 45 divide up until the present, and that's what made me think there really isn't very much around at the time that I was teaching um, that I could give students that was a kind of historical synthesis of the entire 20th century, and uh -huh. the convention was somehow, if you didn't stop at 45, you regarded the Cold War period in a different vain and not really as history at all, but sort mm -hmm. of politics or social science. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that experience of teaching and of not having stimulating materials that thought through the 20th century as a whole um, is what prompted me um, to write Dark Continent. Um, and uh, it, it, intellectually, it was... Um, it was, for me, it was a very valuable experience. Yeah, I, the book was quite a revelation to me. I, I suppose it was because I went to that highly professional PhD program. Um, I recall c quite vividly, and I hope I'm not mistaking this, uh, some of the um, things that you said about interwar Europe particularly and uh, the popularity of fascism among all kinds of people that we don't associate with fascism, including Churchill. So, yes. yeah, I remember, I believe there's a passage in there that talks about Churchill going to Italy or talking about the Italians and explaining how democracy really wasn't right. for them. Is that right? Yeah, no, that, uh, that's a... Uh, uh, some, of, some, of the, some of the book was the product of thinking about Greek history. In other words, you escaped some of the 
paradigms that shape German or French history, but German history in particular, where the whole issue becomes how do you explain this exceptional event, which is the, is the rise of Nazism. But, uh, I mean, there were many other countries. Uh, to me, it was obvious that there were many other countries that had gone right. Uh, mm -hmm. And in, in what you might call a very natural way, mm -hmm. Greece was one of them. Mm -hmm. Nobody in Greece ever sat around wondering how democracy had failed and <laughs> how on earth the right had come to power. It was perfectly obvious that the democratic system in the interwar period was a complete mess. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was a kind of shift of perspective that, in fact, studying this very small, marginal country facilitated. And so in that sense, um, I became aware of how much a certain broader paradigm could be the result of focusing on just one or two big powers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you were familiar with the history of other countries, you got a completely different take on the whole story, not just the story of that country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I quite agree with that. But it, it, was a, it was a useful corrective to the things almost boosterish things that uh, that I had read in that professional PhD program about the march of democracy through time because of course you know as an eastern european historian myself i knew that uh, wilsonianism was a was more or less a disaster in eastern europe and was was abandoned uh, quite quickly and for uh, some good reasons so yeah, yeah I, I recommend the book to to anyone and I, like i told you in the pre-interview i taught the book i used it in a survey course and it, it worked out very well so if there's anyone teaching survey courses um i counsel them to get it but let's move on actually to um this new book hitler's empire how the nazis ruled europe how did you come to write that well um it struck me that uh oddly enough uh there was no single work uh in fact, there isn't a single authored work since the war, I think, perhaps one that I can think of, that attempts to look at the entire European experience under the Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an enormous amount of work on different bits of this. Mm -hmm. But I think the consequence of that is, is uh, segmentation and lack of an overall interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's what I uh, wanted to try to provide and to think through for myself, in a sense, in a a kind of return to one of the central chapters of Dark Continent, but expanding it and linking it up to a number of issues that were m much more on my mind now than they had been then. For instance, Europe's relationship to the rest of the world and the issue of imperialism in particular, which didn't figure very large in Dark Continent, but, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but seemed more and more important as I came to think about the Nazi New Order. Now, I, the book is not... Um, a total history of Europe's experience under Nazism. Rather, it, it, it's a study of Nazi rule, mm -hmm. of, of what they thought they were doing when they ruled, of what they did, um, attempting in, in the process, I think, to see Europe as a whole and to ask, you know, uh, how did they, uh, how did they see Europe as a whole? What did they want from Europe? If anything mm -hmm. uh, uh, how well did they think they were doing mm -hmm. um, I find that a lot of the discussion of the war perhaps because the Holocaust has come to uh, center stage in our thinking about the war mm -hmm. has acquired a, a, a highly moralistic tone the mm -hmm. war is kind of plumbed for example for moral lessons mm -hmm. and I, I, I wanted uh, in a way to put all of that to one side and uh, turn the Nazis 
uh, as far as one could, which isn't very easy, into kind of boring management consultants offering <laughs> a different kind of set of techniques of rule and occupation. Yeah, no, and I guess, you know, this was against the backdrop of Iraq mm-hmm. and the occupation of Iraq, and therefore military occupation as such became an urgent question to think about. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what the Nazis essentially were doing. Mm-hmm. What was their philosophy of occupation? And mm-hmm. it, you know, then one finds it varies enormously from place to place and time to time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think that's right. I, I, I know that uh, in my own readings of German history, which I actually are quite extensive, I, I sort of started my historical career as somebody who was very interested in World War II, as many yeah. Americans do. Um, uh, you know, we, we I tended to think of the... Uh, I tended to think of the Nazis from a very German perspective. Now, of course, they right. were German nationalists, so on and so forth, but we, we tend to forget, I think, the degree to which they talked about being Europeans yes. and they thought they were fighting for Europe. Now, I, I don't know whether that was cynical or not. I tend to think not, but they did think a lot about Europe as a, as a whole. They thought about Europe, and uh, even more than they thought about Europe, well, they were in Europe. Yes, they were right. just yeah. in Germany. <laughs> yeah, no. And you wouldn't always right. guess that from the way German historians write about them. No, that's true. Uh, and therefore, they, whether or not they were thinking about Europe as such, and some of them were thinking about a lot, and some of them were just paying lip service to it, mm-hmm. there they were in uh, Estonia or Serbia uh, or Western France, and they had to do something about that. Uh, they had to work out what they thought of the people, how they intended to rule them, what the short and long-run policies were, how these fitted into what, whatever the long-run goals of the regime actually were. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's this wonderful thing that, uh, that the um, Foreign Office interpreter Schmidt says about the Nazis, where he says, you know, they were always talking about a thousand-year Reich, but they couldn't plan ahead for five minutes. <laughs> um, so one had to resist the temptation in taking their planning too seriously. But never, nevertheless, they were spending a lot of time talking about mm-hmm. planning for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a lot of what they did only made sense if you thought, thought about it in terms of a longer-run political project, the, mm-hmm. the Holocaust being the most obvious example, but mm-hmm. there being many, many others as well. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about where you begin the book, and that is with Bismarck and in the 19th century and German attitudes toward uh, the Slavs. In particular, this is something I know a little bit about, again, as an Eastern European historian, but I think many of our listeners will not, because the Germans had some definite ideas about uh, the way... Uh, uh, German power should be projected to Eastern Europe. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the continuities between Bismarck's ideas and those of the Nazis. Well, one of you know one of the things, uh, as somebody interested in Eastern Europe, that always, frankly, left me gobsmacked about the historiography on the rise of the Nazis is all the, all these studies on why the Nazis came to power were highly internalist. They came to power because this class or that class voted mm-hmm. for them. Uh, because of this or that economic program, um, they rarely seem to mention uh, foreign policy and in, in particular the issue of the German minorities mm-hmm. uh, left on the eastern borderlands mm-hmm. after 1918, which was obviously a major issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and in, in, from which point of view, the Nazis looked like ex- very extreme German nationalists, mm-hmm. but part of a, a much, much broader set of opinions. So... It was obvious to me that for the Nazis, uh, one of the key points of coming into power was to win back the territories uh, that they had lost in 1918, uh, and then having won those back and added to them to, as they saw it, improve 
on the Bismarckian state by making sure that nothing like that could ever happen again, mm -hmm. so that you couldn't really understand the Nazi New Order except as an implied critique of the Bismarckian state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they read their Max Weber on the German-Polish problem, mm -hmm. on his critique of why a capitalist state uh, must fail to mm -hmm. nationalize a territory, and they say, yeah, he's right, and we can do better, mm -hmm. because we have a strong state. Mm -hmm. um, so they were deeply interested in this, uh, and that seemed to me um, a useful starting point. Uh, that is to say, to make the starting point of the war, um, all starting points arbitrary, a history of the German-Polish, in particular, antagonism, mm -hmm. um, uh, that, of course, stretched back to the Bismarckian period and, and arguably even earlier than that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I began there, because it was that borderland issue that crystallized for me uh, what spurred the Nazis and actually what made them popular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see that's what you mean. So when, uh, let me ask you a question that may sound naive. I, I think I might know the answer to it, but maybe our listeners won't. Uh, when uh, Hitler embarked uh, on his imperialistic war, did he have a plan as to what Europe would look like um, after he was done? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> there. <laughs> well, that's uh, next question. I, <laughs> I, I see no evidence that, that he had even realized that there were more than two and a half million or so Jews in Poland at yeah. the time that he invaded it. Yeah. Um, so, a plan? No. Uh, a set of uh, preoccupations? And uh, uh, Yes. Uh, and obviously, if you read Mein Kampf, uh, those are very clear. Uh, it's clear what he regarded as the central historical struggle of the epoch. Mm -hmm. uh, it's clear that he believed that Germany had to be strong enough to uh, push the Slavs back. Mm -hmm. That implied some kind of empire in the east. All mm -hmm. of that is clear. Mm -hmm. but, but where the borders were going to be, uh, what the racial policy was going to be towards the people who were there, um, above all, what the implications for the western border were, None of that was clear. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what's breathtaking is the, uh, the, the lack of forethought, the lack of planning. One of the, uh, what looks like one of the major planned episodes of the early part of the war, which are the huge forced population movements, the repatriation of Germans mm -hmm. from Eastern Europe and from Italy from October 1939 onwards, mm -hmm. that helps Himmler and the SS assert themselves as the central agency in the war effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, none of that was planned. That was all uh, the forcing of the Germans' hand by circumstances, mm -hmm. in particular by a terrified reaction of the Germans in the Baltic states uh, that the Soviets were going to come back in and wipe them out mm -hmm. um, and that they were going to be, face a kind of rerun of the situation at the end of the war in 1918. Mm -hmm. None of that had been foreseen in advance. Mm -hmm. um, there was a complete lack of clarity about Scandinavia, all the evidence is that the Nazis had no intention of invading the Balkans, that they would have liked to continue with some kind of domination through these bilateral clearing arrangements, through kind of economic power that they had been developing since the mid-1930s. Mm -hmm. So planned, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. So improvisation would be kind of a hallmark of the regime, and this would be consistent with what uh, actually a lot of your uh, fellow historians of Germany say, that is Kershaw and the, and the rest of them, that they, they weren't exactly making it up as they went along. They had a kind of set of guiding principles, but they were overtaken by events, as you say. You know, one of the historians that I found most helpful in thinking about this is Christopher Browning. Yes, exactly. I, I, I regard as exemplary yeah. in, in his work on the Holocaust. And he's shown, I think, very, very clearly how what ultimately 
happened to the Jews in Poland is really product of a set of unforeseen steps that the Germans take or are either pushed into or pushed into and then take in order in their terms to solve the population problems of the territories they've conquered and I think that was very characteristic of their modus operandi. Yeah, no, uh, the, the book that you're talking about, I think, I don't recall the name of it, but it's called Toward the Final Solution or something well, like this. Yeah, The Origins of the Final Solution. Yes, exactly. Yes. I, f I finished it about a year ago, and I think that you're absolutely right. He spends uh, what I think to most readers would be an inordinate amount of time uh, talking about the attempt precisely to move these uh, the, f the Volksdeutsche to uh, Poland, and then as a result, a kind of knock-on effect, having to remove all of That's these right. poles, and they exactly. didn't, and they didn't know how to do that, That's um, right. because it was such an incredible logistical task. And that, that is right. really, I, I think, kind of one of the, and, and it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it to anyone. Uh, one of the astounding things is, is that they they face these challenges of moving really masses of people, and they, instead of drawing back and pulling up yeah. and looking at it, they actually just waded in. Yes. and attempted to do these things. Yes. No, one of the German generals says after the war, you know, we were building this empire in the most incredible hurry. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's very important to understanding their, uh, I mean, that's part of the, the reason for the extremism. They were in a terrific hurry. Yeah. They thought this all had to be done before the window of opportunity closed. That's right. But then, of course, the other thing is, you know, they are in the grip of this very, very extreme set of beliefs this extreme ideology, mm -hmm. uh, an ideology which often creates as many problems as it does solutions when you actually try to implement it, mm -hmm. more problems than solutions, but which um, uh, always prioritizes the use of force, mm -hmm. which always prioritizes action uh, and, and the exercise of will over uh, rational debate and, and, and reflection. And at the very top of this state and in a position constitutionally of enormous power is one of the most radical figures of all, mm -hmm, Hitler, mm -hmm. uh, who is always um, uh, inclined to violence as a solution to problems. Mm -hmm. So if there's resistance to German rule in France, his solution is push the Wehrmacht into executing more people, mm -hmm. not less. Mm -hmm. And he involves himself in these things. Similarly, on, on behind uh, the Eastern Front in the occupied Eastern territories, he's constantly radicalizing, constantly forcing and ratcheting up the levels of violence. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a combination, I think, of all these things. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's right. One of the most extraordinary things your book points out, and I would also say that uh, this is true of Browning's books and, and Kershaw's books, is uh, the degree of ideological rigidity at the top and how that uh, opens opportunities to people at lower echelons to do things that they had not imagined. Um, so the signal is sent that it is, um, if, if a large number of Jews or Poles are inconvenient, they can be killed or starved or moved someplace. And I think that that allowance uh, kind of Further radicalizes the the entire uh, the, the entire the entire program until really it's basically everybody is fair game at a certain moment. Uh, the radicalism is there, and it's most influential in shaping policy uh, where that leadership is most directly interested. So, in there are many areas uh, of occupied Europe where the regime is not terribly interested much of the time, mm -hmm. or, or where its attention is fitful, and there there's much greater scope. Uh, for local commanders to do things differently. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or to, uh, so that if you look at economic policy towards Belgian or Danish or Dutch corporations, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's not exactly business as usual, 
but it's very different to Poland or the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Germans work with Belgian businessmen, and Belgian and Dutch businessmen have enormous power vis-à-vis mm -hmm. -vis their German counterparts. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at France, same thing. Uh, 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 until at least halfway through the war, and perhaps even after that, um, the Germans uh, take a relatively hands-off role. Um, you look, you look at um, uh, Marianne in Chains, this wonderful book by uh, Robert Gildea mm -hmm. uh, about Western France. Um, Vichy is running Western France, not mm -hmm. the Germans, mm -hmm. and the Germans occasionally pop up. They suggest something, uh, but the, the policy is, if not hands-off, uh, relatively light. Uh, look at the German Slovakia or Croatia, mm -hmm. an, another huge issue which needs to be tackled in much greater depth than I could do, the alliances. We tend to think that Germany's alliances were purely nominal, that mm -hmm. the Germans ran everything. Mm -hmm. The Germans didn't have the troops to run everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is, that is, I was going to say that's something that your book points out very well. There's a, there's a wonderful map in it uh, that I believe is called Imperial Overstretch right. that shows the disposition of German forces over the continent and how incredibly thinly they were stretched. Oh, yes. They were really everywhere, but nowhere, except, you know, there were great concentrations on the Eastern Front against the Soviets, obviously, but everywhere else they were pretty thin on the ground. Yes, the Eastern Front is the, is the overwhelming zone of operations, and they need the Italians, the, the Hungarians, the, the Slovaks, yeah. the Croats, and Bulgarians, and others. They can't do without them. Yeah. And although they want to tell them what to do, they can't always tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. and so there's a real issue here of alliance politics that needs to be looked at. And I found that the Italians in particular uh, offered some of the most trenchant kind of insights into the nature of Nazi rule of anybody. Uh, and their, their, their records hadn't really very much been mined for that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and of course, you know, like the Brits vis-a-vis -vis the Americans in the second half of the war, the Italians were very conscious of being the junior partners in an alliance mm -hmm. and therefore particularly prone to scrutinize the actions of their senior partner. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a very clear sense of what was going wrong. And there were many Germans in the foreign ministry in particular who, knew, who had the same analysis mm -hmm. um, and were hoping the Italians would help them get to Hitler and persuade him to change course without mm -hmm. much success. So mm -hmm. the... the uh, Allies, I thought, were an extremely important part of this. No, I think th I think that's exactly right. I, I uh, have studied the military history of the Eastern Front, and I can tell any of our listeners that the Allies were extraordinarily important there, and they they never really get the due that they deserve. I would, I would also just to go back to your point about the Foreign Office. Um, isn't it the case that Browning? He wrote a book about the German Foreign Office, didn't he? Not? His first book was about the, yeah. and, and still pioneering book was yeah. about the German Foreign Office and the Final Solution. Yeah, that one I have not read, but I imagine that it's really fascinating because that work that 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 work comes up again in his book about the the origins of the Final Solution itself. So, well, what what he showed in that, which I hadn't really appreciated at the time, but I appreciate now, is that we look back on what happened to the Jews. And, and we see it as a past of a single holistic program or policy. But it's not quite clear that it worked in that way, that mm -hmm. what happened to the Jews in the occupied Eastern Territories in the Soviet Union was part of the same dynamic as what happened to the Jews of Poland, who, after all, for, for whom a number of dedicated industrial death camps were built and then demolished, mm -hmm. or was it part of the same process as what happened to the Jews of the rest of Europe, um, to get whom the SS needed the Foreign Office. Mm -hmm. And so bureaucratically, entirely different bits, often rivals of the Third Reich, had to be brought into play 
Uh, and this was not um, un- this was not a, a simple matter for the regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a sense, what you have is um, the Jews being killed first, who can bo- most easily be targeted by the regime. That's to say, in the occupied Soviet territories, where they're really at their mercy. Mm-hmm. Poland takes a little longer. Uh, uh, the rest of Europe takes longer still. Uh, and so they are still working this through by the end of the war as their ambitions, genocidal ambitions, grow and grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. Uh, is it, I, I've read another book, um, you know, and I'm, I'm having trouble remembering the name of the author. I think his name was Cesarini. Is that correct? Yeah, David Cesarani. David, yeah. David Cesarani, yes, exactly. Um, and and it, it points out, uh, the, you know, the difficulty that the Germans had in coordinating, in fact, the, yes. the, 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 the transfer of these quite large populations of of Jews to areas where they could be killed. Yes. Um, yeah, no, and, and it shows also, I mean, it's about Eichmann. It's, a bio, it's ostensibly in a biography of Eichmann um, that, that Eichmann, uh, you know, exercised actually a, a lot of kind of entrepreneurial spirit in doing this. And there were technical questions involved. I mean, and we tend to forget this. That there, was also, there was also the politics, uh, uh, that, uh, and I suppose this was quite important, and I don't know how well I succeeded, but I wanted to try to show that the, the, the final solution does not exist outside the politics of the war. And the important question in determining the fate of any Jewish community is not necessarily how anti-Semitic people were or weren't, so that you can have the same country, Romania, for instance, yeah. that in 1941 is very happy to do whatever the Germans suggest vis-a-vis killing the Jews. In fact, it will go beyond what the Nazis suggest. It will kill more of them more horribly, faster than the Nazis had bargained for. Mm-hmm. But from the summer of 1942, they will go into reverse. There's a U-turn. The Germans will ask to hand over the remaining Jews, and the Romanians refuse. The Germans didn't suddenly, the Romanians, I'm sorry, did not suddenly flip from one day to the next from being anti-Semites to being pro-Semites. Mm-hmm. That whatever their views on the Jews had been, remained much the same. What had changed was their sense of how their behavior on the Jewish question would impact um, their, their future as a country. Mm-hmm. Up until the summer of 42, they're convinced the Germans are going to win, mm-hmm. and it's very important to do whatever is necessary uh, to stay in the good books of the Germans. Mm-hmm. After 1942, they're not so convinced, and they're also worried that doing what the Germans say is going to impact adversely on Romanian sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So they start to dig their heels in, and when they become convinced that Germany is going to lose, of course, they oppose this to send a signal to the Allies that they're really on the Allies' side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was very important in a book of this kind, where the Holocaust is not at the center of mm-hmm. things, to show how if you decentered it, you could understand better in some instances the course of events. Mm-hmm. No, I see what you mean. Maybe you could take us on a little tour of what the um, Nazis wanted from the various occupied territories, because uh, it seems to me that there's a, a little bit of diversity there. Well, there's huge diversity. Yeah. Uh, they wanted a number of different things. Uh, there were territories that they regarded as rightfully German. Some of these had been German before 1918. Some of them they wanted on uh, longer run, as it were, in inverted commas, historical um, grounds. Uh, we're primarily talking about Western Poland mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Western Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. um, but also Northern Yugoslavia and possibly later in the day Northern Italy as well. So mm-hmm. there was a the construction of a greater Germany. Then there were further territories to the east um, uh, stretching in Hitler and Himmler's uh, crazed imagination all, all, all the way from the Arctic down to the Crimea mm-hmm. that were going to become the 
um, marches of a new German empire in the east. Mm -hmm. They were going to form settlement grounds uh, in which the indigenous inhabitants were going to either be enslaved uh, or killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they begin this process uh, under the plan known as General Plan East. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, that the uh, bulk of the regime's energies, when it thinks about the future, is directed towards w- the empire of General Plan East. Mm-hmm. And General Plan East was what was going to guarantee the SS continued role as a kind of centerpiece of, of the right. The mm-hmm. war, I think, turns the SS into what we think of it as. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that raised the question, what about Western Europe? What about Scandinavia? What about the Danubian region? What about Italy? Mm-hmm. Short answer is they thought very much less about all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cared much less about all of that. You could always find some bit of that region where there was a German claim, Alsace and Lorraine and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, they just wanted these people to shut up, uh, be quiet, hand over their Jews and work for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, in summary, their, their, their policy. Yeah. Uh, and so for an early part of the war, the, the occupation in France, for instance, Denmark, most obviously, is really quite benign isn't quite the right word, but it's, it's nothing like what you have on the eastern, mm-hmm. uh, eastern territories. Mm-hmm. And then it harshens uh, very rapidly uh, as uh, invasion approaches and the Wehrmacht comes in. And at that point, eastern front rules come to Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And you get much the same kind of burning of villages, mm-hmm. uh, mass hanging of civilians, uh, forced deportation of laborers and so on and so on mm-hmm. that you that had become the norm in the ukraine and Belarusia. Mm-hmm. so uh this may sound like a kind of callous question to our listeners but l- let me ask it anyway uh what sort of logistical challenges did the germans face on the eastern front as they attempted to implement this general plan east um uh, well, all of them <laughs> they 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 faced the same fundamental problem that the serbs faced in banja luka in mm-hmm. 1993 which is that military overwhelming military triumph made them realize that they'd won too much land and didn't have enough people mm-hmm. uh that was their fundamental long-term problem they lacked the uh, populations to control or settle this territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hitler's response to the, the lack of adequate manpower was terror, uh, and so you you got a terror policy imposed to try and frighten the Slav inhabitants of the region into compliance. And then on top of that, you get a kind of racial policy uh, being pursued in the middle of the war, which is going to try and sift through. And, and find which Slavs are in fact Germans, which could be turned yeah. into Germans, mm-hmm. to improve the numbers. Um, that doesn't work very well, and by the end of the war, they've had to reverse themselves completely and go back to a much older kind of Wilhelmine policy from the First World War of appealing to Ukrainian or Belarusian mm-hmm. or Estonian nationalists to work with them against the, uh, against the communists. But the irony of that strategy is there's only one reason why that works even halfway, uh, and that is that everybody knows the Red Army is coming. Mm-hmm. So it's a strategy that can only work when you're losing the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that point, of course, it's far too late. And, and there are many observers inside the German regime and outside it, notably the Japanese uh, in Berlin, who I found interesting on this, who think that Hitler was completely mad mm-hmm. and that if he had pursued a pro-nationalist policy in Eastern Europe from the start and galvanized Ukrainians and Belarusians around Germany in an anti-communist crusade, mm-hmm. he could have still been uh, in, in much of the Soviet Union um, 
through the end of the war and beyond. Yeah, this was kind of the Habsburg option. I, I interviewed right. Tim Snyder about this, and oh, I, was, yes. I, was, I was surprised to learn that the Habsburgs were still thinking about the resurrection of a kind of quasi-nationalist Habsburg empire during right. and even after the war. They, were, they right. sort of hung on to this idea. Well, I, I guess it's kind of, again, this sounds like a naive and, and, Go ahead. No, that, 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 that's right. And indeed, of course, in, in the Wehrmacht are a number of men who had been junior officers in the Habsburg army. Um, they had been in the Balkans or in the Ukraine in 1917 and 1918, and they remembered very, very well what that policy had been, mm-hmm. and they thought that the best thing to do was to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but you, the, the one way to think about the Nazis, is, uh, and Hitler in particular, is as an anti-Habsburg. Mm-hmm. Everything he does is to do the opposite of what the Habsburgs did. Mm-hmm. So the last thing he was going to do in 1943 or 1944 was revert to a Habsburg policy if he could help it. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. happens is a kind of Habsburg policy gets implemented behind his back yeah. by the army. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, so the, the, the Habsburg option uh, is never taken precisely because of Hitler. Yes, that's yes, right. Right, but again, it was taken behind his back, so to say. I know that the organization of the Vlasov Army and then the recruitment of, of, of actually lots of settlers to the, to, the, um, to the eastern territories from Ukraine and other places. Um, did, was Hitler aware of these things? Um, intermittently, to judge from his conversations with his generals. And it, uh, uh, when he did become aware of them, he wasn't very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but by the time he becomes aware of them, um, in the second half of 44, things are rapidly going from bad to worse uh, on the Eastern Front. And um, uh, he's, he's not in the position that he would have been three years earlier mm-hmm. um, to, to block them. Mm-hmm. I, I guess one question, it's a more general question than the ones I've asked that, that I have, and I think that a lot of listeners have, is that, um, you know, one of the remarkable things I think about uh, the German occupation, particularly of the Eastern territories, is the degree to which Hitler was able or his generals were able to ask the Wehrmacht and the auxiliary police and so on and so forth to do things which had previously thought to have been really too extreme to even contemplate yet yet they did them and it, with quite you know with, with some protests but actually not very much um, how, how are we to explain this there's been a lot of debate about this obviously and I just well there are two or three um, possibilities I suppose one is that um, if you if you read the very interesting new work by Isabel Hull of Cornell in her book absolute destruction she argues that within the German army dating back into the late 19th century was a military culture that predisposed the army in what it regarded as existentially decisive situations to adopt policies of extreme violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't that they are, as it were, inherently genocidal, Mm -hmm. um, but um, they are are prone to uh, interpret crises in this kind of way as an all-or-nothing situation Mm -hmm. uh, in which they lose inhibitions about uh, behaving in ways that they wouldn't normally countenance. Mm -hmm. That's part of the answer, I think. second part of the answer is that, in fact, the army itself is on a rapid learning curve or de-inhibiting mm-hmm. curve, if that's the right way of putting mm-hmm. it, because we know that when um, the army goes into Poland in '39, uh, many army officers are shocked at the behavior of the SS, mm-hmm. or for the ma- that matter, at the fact that when army officers uh, kill civilians, 
uh, in uh, cold blood, that they're not punished. Mm -hmm. And when the military police arrest them and try to punish them, the regime protects them. Mm -hmm. They're shocked, they're dismayed, a few of them protest. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the time you get to the invasion of the Soviet Union, in which, of course, the ideological stakes were much higher, Mm -hmm. um, people have learned the lesson. That is to say, they've learned that this regime uh, is uh, not going to tolerate protests and, and is going to back the men to do anything they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so that has a, a galvanizing effect on, on the troops. Uh, and they find themselves in many circumstances doing things that they wouldn't have done just two years earlier. So mm-hmm. the war itself, I think, has a catalytic effect. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the third thing is that they, are, they have the SS on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And the army, uh, with a, a pusillanimous leadership, it must be said, mm-hmm. is very worried by the fact that Himmler is adroitly playing on, on Hitler's love of violence and he's playing on the invasion of the Soviet Union to position the SS as the central um, agency in the Reich, in the East. And the uh, army leadership are aware that if they don't match the SS, uh, that they will be outflanked, and they're very, very worried about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, as it were, internal interagency re- reasons, again, uh, why they tolerate a level of violence against civilians that they wouldn't have done two or three years earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did anyone uh, in the German establishment, that being the Wehrmacht or the um, Foreign Office or anyone close to Hitler, ever attempt to tell him that what uh, he was trying to do in the occupied territories in the east was logistically impossible. Oh, oh, lots of people, um, but uh, he didn't want to hear, uh, and increasingly uh, he becomes inaccessible uh, mm-hmm. to those people uh, because he's in his East Prussian headquarters. Um, he's surrounded by yes men or, or by people like Bormann and Goebbels who mm-hmm. think. Uh, uh, who are even more extreme than he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the man that he appointed uh, as the minister for the occupied Eastern Territories, Alfred Rosenberg, mm-hmm. uh, was one of those who thought this was completely the wrong way to go about things. He mm-hmm. wanted a kind of anti-communist coalition against the, against the Soviets. But one of the reasons he'd appointed Rosenberg was, you know, uh, Rosenberg was an incompetent windbag. Nobody took him seriously. Right, yeah. um, then, you know, you look at figures like von Moltke in the Wehrmacht International Law Branch, who we know uh, is deeply troubled by what he's reading about mm-hmm. the behavior of, of his own men in the Wehrmacht, mm-hmm. um, as well as in the SS, and, and the regime's uh, complete abandonment of international law. Mm-hmm. So I was quite interested in the German international lawyers and how they respond to being um, disregarded and marginalized by yeah. this regime. And they're, they're deeply worried by this. Uh Um, And then, most bizarrely, you get this extraordinary episode um, when the Governor-General of Poland, Hans Frank, a man with the blood of tens of thousands of people on his uh, his hands, uh, starts, uh, after a feud with Himmler, starts touring the German universities in the summer of 1942, making speeches, telling the students that um, because of the way it's behaving in in occupied territories, Germany is in danger of becoming a police state. You think, well, yeah. Well, yeah. what's going on there? 
Yeah. Um, what does he think he's been doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, and given what he thinks he's been doing, what does this really mean? Yeah. So yeah. There, there, there were clearly gradations in the minds of these Nazi officials as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I see what you mean. I, I'm, I'm very sorry to say that our, that our time has almost run out. We've taken up a, a huge amount of, of, of your time, and I know that you have to go. Uh, I could talk about these things all day long, and maybe I'll just call you back to talk about them another time. But <laughs> at, in any event, let me ask you uh, our traditional final question. That is, what are you working on now? What is your next project? Uh, I'm trying to work out where the idea for the United Nations came from. Really? Yes. Do you have a preliminary answer to that? I don't know. I... Uh, uh, one one might be a last desperate gamble by the British Empire. That's a heck but... of a heck of a good question. That never really occurred to me, and that's the mark of a good question, <laughs> at least in my <laughs> mind. <laughs> I thought you. it just sprung up from nothing. Well, you have to promise to be on the show next time when you get that, when I you do. get that book done. Well, anyway, uh, Mark Mazar, thanks very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, Martin. take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Mark Mazauer, author of Hitler's Empire, How the Nazis Ruled Europe. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music.